I'm John Banther, and this is Season 3 of Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Matthew Dayton, and we're talking all about Leonard Bernstein, his life, music, and challenges. There's a lot you may not know about Bernstein, like how he got his start in music and his personal struggles. We also get into what makes his music so characteristic, and we share with you some of his works that you probably haven't even heard before. Stay with us to the end as we learn what made Bernstein Bernstein, and to hear some of your reviews of Classical Breakdown. Okay, Matthew, as we get into the life and music of Bernstein, I want to start with a quote from one of the great conductors today, of course, also a student of Leonard Bernstein, that's Maren Alsop. Here's what she had to say. She said, Leonard Bernstein was a thinker, teacher, author, television star, provocateur, humanitarian, and he was my hero. As with all true mentors, Bernstein taught me much more than a craft. He showed me, and the world, the enormous power of music and how important it is to share it with as much of humanity as is possible. He showed us that classical music is a powerful force that can transform lives as well as inspire and move people, and he lived by those principles. It's nice all the sentimental things she says towards the end, but of course it's so true when she started with. He was a teacher, an author, a television star, also a conductor and a composer. He lived like four lifetimes at once. Yeah, indeed. And I would add to that he was an incredible collaborator and just a a magnetic personality as well. It seemed like he just needed to be with people at all times. Being by himself was not something he really enjoyed. Exactly right. Yeah. And sometimes... Uh, maybe even to his detriment. Mm-hmm. So we can't get into every single thing about Bernstein, of course. If we do that, we'll be here for literal weeks because he did live seemingly many uh, lifetimes at once. But I think we can already say that if Copeland had captured that kind of American pastoral sound that we associate with works like Appalachian Spring or Billy the Kid, then I think it's safe to say, Matthew, that Bernstein definitely captured that city and urban landscape within the United States, thinking of works like West Side Story and On the Town. Absolutely. And and indeed, I mean, it makes sense because he really lived that, the, the city and urban American life to, to an incredible degree. So let's jump into basically the beginning, when Bernstein is born. It was August 25th, 1918, and I already have to stop and just kind of marvel at this fact, because to kind of date myself a little, I was born just a few years before Bernstein died, so I have no context for Bernstein as his living artist. But Same here. But and you may relate to this too, mm-hmm. then, that he is this legend that seems to have always existed and always yeah. will exist. Exactly. So when I see that he was born in 1918, it's always like kind of a shock. It was that long ago, thinking about how he grew up. This is the silent film era. Broadcast radio is really in its infancy. Just the cultural and environment of growing up in the 20s. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is when American music was really flowering. Uh, I mean, jazz was invented while he was growing up. Yes. And that's the popular art form at the time and what he's hearing. The jazz, uh, big band, ragtime music like that. And of course, that had to have been an influence, even from the start, on his musical ideas. Absolutely. And you can, you can hear it in pretty much everything he wrote. I agree. Pretty much everything he wrote, even in places where it seems like there's not that influence, it's always kind of there in the background. Yep. 
And Bernstein, he didn't start playing the piano until he was 10 years old, which when you look at his career and what he did, it's kind of late for someone to be starting piano at that age and then achieve that much. I mean, all these huge stars that even today, you know, they started when they're three, four or five years old playing the piano. And here he is, 10 years old, not very supported by his father in this endeavor. He doesn't see his first orchestra concert until 1932. He's already a teenager. And it's just remarkable that even starting at this age, he was able to do so much. Yeah, and and that's why we kind of think of him as, or a lot of people kind of think of him as uh, America's Mozart. I mean, Mm. it was just the fact of a piano being in his house when he was a kid that got him started. He was so precocious. So he's learning the piano, he's taking lessons, and he ends up going to Harvard, and is a school we all know. But then he also studies at Curtis, which might be unfamiliar to many, but Curtis was and still is one of the most prestigious music conservatories in the United States. And it's a little strange for someone to go to Harvard and then Curtis, not just today, but even then. Usually you go to Curtis, you're like 16 years old, but he had already gone to Harvard, composed and done things, and then went to Curtis to study conducting. Yeah, you can kind of see the influence of the the liberal arts in in his in the rest of his work mm-hmm. uh he, you know he started at harvard that's a that was a liberal arts education he collaborated not just with other musicians and theater people but even a philosopher wow so while he's at curtis he's studying with fritz reiner the one of the greatest conductors of the 20th century also thinking of he was leading the chicago symphony orchestra he then gets this opportunity to go to the Tanglewood Music Center, this is really as it's starting, as it's coming into fruition in 1940. And the Tanglewood Music Center is and continues to be one of the most prestigious music festivals in the world. Basically, it's the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It's in Lenox, Massachusetts, so out in Western Mass. And I mean, everyone who goes there, it is a transformative experience. And he goes there and he meets Kusevitsky, the music director of the Boston Symphony, and they immediately become very, very close. Kusevitsky becomes this father figure. And from here, he starts meeting and talking with and collaborating with people like Aaron Copeland and Samuel Barber, along with Kusevitsky and others, already in his early 20s, rubbing shoulders with some of the biggest in the industry. That's right. And we can really attribute his meteoric rise to fame as a very young man to really his personality. I mean, he he just, he won everyone over. Copeland, Kusevitsky, just anyone he happened to, to be around, they just fell in love with him because he was so talented and, and charming. And it's hard to think about how, of course, everyone loves him, but I, I also read and saw so much that a lot of people also hated him, especially early on, because this huge personality, the center of attention. People say you fall in love with him immediately or you hate him. But of course, no one today, I can't, you you don't really hear that often, people hating Bernstein. That's right. But his personality at the time was divisive. Oh yeah, I can well imagine that, I mean, he would suck the oxygen out of any room that, that he came into. And you'll see in many documentaries and biographies and memoirs of people who work with him that what you just said would happen all the time. He Mm -hmm. just becomes like a supernova in the room. Yep. So this is a time, of course, of World War II. There is no international travel. Things are scaled back. There's there's rations. And this is where he's kind of coming into fruition, rubbing shoulders with these big stars. But of course, he's not traveling overseas. But he does, as many did, receive a letter from uh, the military 
I'm going to read here from a couple of things throughout, um, as we talk about Bernstein, a collection of letters done by Nigel Simeone. These are fantastic. I mean, we have letters from when he was, you know, really growing up to now with Kusevitsky, that music director, writing him about possibly leaving music for the military. He said, as you know, I have already received a questionnaire from the army. And as far as I know, I am perfectly eligible, except for a siege of asthma and hay fever that I am now undergoing. It is therefore difficult to formulate any winter plans, for I cannot be given a responsible position while there is the probability of my being suddenly taken away from it by the army. But here's the thing. He continues later on saying, In the light of world events, however, I want least of all to shirk my responsibility to my country, and I therefore wonder if I might be of service to the USO, where I could simultaneously serve national defense and remain in my field of endeavor. Do you agree with this attitude? I'm registered, of course, in Philadelphia, and he goes on to say that he really trusts Kusevitsky morally and practically to help him with this decision. That's right, yeah. And uh, I think uh, I remember reading that he was a little conflicted about ultimately not being allowed to to join the army because of his asthma. And uh, it was Copeland who kind of consoled him and said, you know, you had asthma, and that was that. He did kind of end up doing some kind of effort. I mean, with the war in the background, that's that was the background of his first major work, right? Fancy Free. That's right. Fancy Free, a ballet which deals with three sailors coming home. But I think, speaking of Copeland, I think it was Copeland who also wrote in a letter to Bernstein, just have a massive coughing fit <laughs> when you go to the army office and they'll reject you right away. But of course, he did have asthma mm-hmm. and so he didn't serve. But he wanted to you know, do what, what was right by that. Yeah. So looking even to just the next year, we see something happening in Bernstein's life that would bless him and plague him forever. And that is he becomes very, very busy with writing music, arranging music, also doing, getting contracts to do reductions for operas for the sum of tens of thousands of dollars. But here's what he writes to Copeland in the following year in a letter. He says, who do you think called me up the other day from his house in Westport? And here he's referring to that Chicago symphony conductor who we know today, uh, Fritz Reiner. Bernstein continues, and he wants to do my symphony in Pittsburgh next fall, and he loves it, and he wants me to conduct a program anyway, and maybe to do the symphony myself. Lovely, lovely news. But he is most anxious for a fourth movement, insists it's all too sad and defeatist. The same criticism my father had, which raises pop in my estimation to no end. I really haven't the time or energy for a fourth movement. I seem to have had my say as far as that piece is concerned, and I want to get on with something else. He's in his early 20s. He's got this symphony that he's working on, and he's already too busy and says, mm-hmm. I got to go on to the next thing. That's right. Yeah. It's a blessing, of course, to have all this work. You don't complain about too much work, and you try not to in music, but he's already just getting too busy and kind of splitting himself thin over over many different roles. That's right. I mean, you kind of wonder if he's he's one of these people who is so extroverted and and so wants to work with all the different people around him that he kind of can't say no to any project. Yeah. Now, here is where things get pretty remarkable. It's 1943. He becomes assistant conductor for the New York Philharmonic. And what happens next is something that's happened many times before and still happens to this day. Basically, when you're an assistant conductor, you need to be ready to step in at a moment's notice, no matter what the situation, and conduct. So Bruno Walter, the conductor who was supposed to lead the New York Phil that night, got sick. And so Bernstein, last minute, with no rehearsal, 
conducted the concert, and it was a radio broadcast. And in fact, there's also an announcement. Good afternoon. United States Rubber Company again invites you to Carnegie Hall to hear a concert of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, of which Artur Rajinsky is musical director. Bruno Walter, who was to have conducted this afternoon, is ill, and his place will be taken by the young American-born assistant conductor of the Philharmonic Symphony, Leonard Bernstein. And so last minute, Bernstein steps up and conducts the concert, and it's a radio broadcast, and instantly becomes this kind of star. He's in the front page of the newspaper all over the country, and people are just so infatuated. That's right, and and part of the reason is because at that time, I mean, American classical music audiences were used to having conductors, the big conductors of all the leading orchestras, be uh, imports from Europe. I mean, they were they were the old the old regime from from European countries. Yeah, because they were coming over here to conduct, and if you were this big musician, I guess you know, going to school in the U.S., you often left and went to Europe to study, even create a career, and then come back. Here's Bernstein. Um, homegrown, stepping up to conduct. Exactly. And I'm sure his Mozartian precocity really helped him there because that was a that would be a, a tough program to conduct. Okay. What was it again? It included uh, a couple of like super modern, very difficult pieces. It okay. was it was crazy. Wow. And that's for people that don't know if there's like a there's like a standard rep that you play and sometimes you can, you know, it's it's a lot easier to step in, but if it's something that's very, very different, that's been rehearsed a very certain way, like some of these modern works, mm-hmm. uh, that's a feat to to say the least. So it's nineteen forty four, he's just had this huge premiere with the New York Phil in last minute. In this year alone, he debuts that ballet, Fancy Free. He has a musical on the town, and then he premieres his first symphony with the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. I can't think of almost anyone else who's experienced that. Huge conductor debut, musical, ballet, and then a symphony. Yeah, I mean, that's that's instant world fame. That's just success right to the top. And of course, as we said, he does get criticism, and sometimes it was from a very, very close friend. For instance, Shirley Gabbis was this student and colleague, basically, of Bernstein at Curtis. She was just a few years younger, and she wrote this letter to him that same year where he premiered and did all this stuff. She wrote this to him in a letter. First, it starts off with, hey, can you please send me this address to um, this guy in California? I have to get in contact with him. But then she says, I heard the clarinet sonata that Bernstein wrote on records and feel moved to give you the following criticism, unasked for though it may be. As an honest human being and a conscientious composer, it would seem that you should not be satisfied with your music until it has a little bit of the real Lenny in it, and not just a rehash of Hindemith and Copeland. That's already pretty intense, but she continues, of course, I haven't the vaguest idea of what has happened to the real Lenny, and even if he exists anymore. Your driving ambition to be the most versatile creature on earth will kill any possibility of you becoming a truly great artist in any one of the talents you possess. Think hard, Lenny. Bore way down deep into yourself and find there the courage to be honest. Is your mission in life to be the greatest of all dilettantes? And a dilettante, as I've learned, is basically someone who has no real authority or knowledge on a subject but kind of pretends to be. Just dabbles in everything. Yes. Imagine saying that to Bernstein, but then it's fun at the end. She says, oh yeah, please don't forget, send me that address. I need it for this this contact. Mm-hmm. What's even better is Nigel Simeone, who cataloged all these letters, contacted her in 2013 by email, and right. she said, I remember writing this letter. What nerve. 
But who knew, as his father famously said, that he would become Leonard Bernstein? Mm-hmm. She said that he responded on a postcard that she didn't save, but he was not very happy. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can imagine that was pretty, pretty harsh criticism for someone so young. I mean, she was basically, I think she said that uh, she kind of wanted him to, to be Beethoven. Yes, listen to some Beethoven. It might help you a little bit. <laughs> right. But uh, she only said this, as she also mentioned, because they were very, very close and remained right. close, too. I mean, mm-hmm. friends can, can have a spat and, and continue. But that's just kind of the environment you don't really think about for Bernstein. But, of course, in the early part of a career, that's happening. Right. Now, it's post-World War II. He can now travel. He starts this incredible career outside of the United States. He develops a lifelong relationship with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. He, in 1951, becomes head of the conducting and orchestra departments at Tanglewood, again, one of the most prestigious festivals in the world. And in 1953, he becomes the first American to conduct at La Scala, perhaps the most prestigious opera house in the world. Right. Yeah, I mean, yet another big deal for, for America. Exactly. And you think of people in, in Italy, here is this American coming over. For them, it's their first American right. to, to conduct. Yep. And, of course, we know by 1958, when he's just 40 years old, he becomes music director of the New York Philharmonic. And it's just a, it's even a, a bigger rocket ship to fame and celebrity from there, especially with him reinvigorating the young people's concerts. Now they're televised. That's an entire career in itself. When you see all of the shows and scripts and everything he did, he had to do that basically in his just spare time here and there, kind of like in the middle of the night. So he's got a a full-time career basically as a music educator, full-time career as a conductor, and he's also writing some incredible music in the same time. Yes. And the influence he's having is, it's almost, it's really unparalleled. Marin Alsop, one of today's great conductors, said that she was in the audience for one of these young people's concerts. She's like nine years old and said... She saw him conduct and was immediately like, I have to do this. Right. That's what, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And then she did. Yeah. And, I mean, he finds himself at big cultural moments, as we know, in, in the decades to come. In 1971, with the premiere, with the opening of the Kennedy Center here in Washington, he writes a mass, which is this com- huge theatrical work. You have to see it. You can listen to it, yeah. but it doesn't land. You really need to, to see it to fully experience it. No, yeah, it, it, it combines uh, dancing, costumes, just like everything. Oh, yeah. Very 70s. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when the Berlin Wall came down, those famous concerts of uh, Bernstein conducting Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9 and changing the words from Freude to Freiheit. So now the Ode to Joy is the Ode to Freedom. Right. He was present at all these huge cultural moments throughout post-World War II. That's right. And uh, it's just like that quote from Alsop that you began with. Uh, he really had his pulse on the tide of his day. And he did get married at this time, too, as well. In 1951, had several children. And it was a very complicated family life, as you'll see in a lot of documentaries, especially featuring the children and, and Jamie Bernstein, because his um, he was described as being gay by, well, a lot of people in his circle, but, of course, his family more accurately describing him as bi, because mm-hmm. he wanted this family life. He wanted this... Um, uh, children, he wanted to be married. And it, there was a really interesting discovery the Bernstein kids had well after his death. They said they found like an envelope with letters that said, um, you know, sealed. It was like a mm-hmm. from the estate lawyer saying, do not open until 25 years after Bernstein's death. Wow. 
And it was a few years until 25. I think they're like, okay, well, we're opening this now. And then they find letters to between Bernstein and his wife, uh, Felicia Montalegra, basically saying she said she was full aware of what of um, him being bi, but was just saying, look, we love each other. Let's Mm -hmm. do this. I I don't want to sacrifice myself on the altar of Bernstein, but let's give it a shot. Let's go for it. Yeah. And I mean, it's just another example of there's a term in uh, psychology, uh, personality trait. There are like five main ones. And one of them is openness to experience. I think Bernstein was just off the charts on that measure. Oh, yes. It's incredible the the life of celebrity that he lived and was just able to do almost everything. Yep. I mean, he he experienced everything to the fullest. And he wanted to incorporate everything into his life and, and into his expression. Oh, yes. And part of the reason everyone says he lived two or three lifetimes is because um, Jamie Bernstein, his daughter, also mentioned him being an insomniac mm-hmm. and just not being able to sleep. So he would be up at night writing and composing and doing all kinds of things while everyone else is sleeping. And he often, I've read that he looked just really tired a lot of the times. I can imagine. And that's part of why it's so miraculous that he did live for so long. And there's another interesting letter he wrote in 1972 from Austria to Helen Coates, who, by the way, was his first piano teacher and became his secretary until he died. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. He had these lifelong, loyal friendships that he treasured. But he, he wrote to her saying, This is a brief moment grabbed out of a monstrous schedule just to send love and say that all is well with health, though not with schedule. There's been some poor planning, too much at once. Besides, I don't feel like performing much these days. I'd rather be quietly composing, but I'll get through it somehow. And then there is the compensation of beautiful music. He was always plagued by just um, doing too much. Yeah, too much at once. And in fact, speaking of Bernstein's music, we're going to go into next uh, some of examples of his music and really show what sets him apart and what makes it, when you listen to his music, what makes Bernstein Bernstein. That's right after this. Let's take a quick break. Teachers, parents, students, and music lovers, take note. Classical WETA announces our online educational resource for classical music called Take Note. Young music lovers can explore masterpieces and meet the greatest composers and performers using episodes of our Classical Breakdown podcast, paired with guided creative activities that enhance music appreciation. An enduring love of classical music begins with Take Note at takenoteclassical.org. So we can get into now the music of Bernstein, and just the characteristics of it all. In fact, let's go right back to the beginning, to that fancy-free ballet that you mentioned, these three sailors who uh, come ashore to um, to New York, and then they have this experience of basically flirting with women and going to a bar. But we can hear already the influence of of jazz and all of the, of the sounds of the 20s and 30s where he grew up. Oh yeah, he used uh, actual popular dances from the from the 30s and, and 40s. I mean, Boogie Woogie, uh, Lindy Hop, it's all in there. And he's using here a lot of interesting things here with, with rhythm. There's a lot of syncopation, rhythms that happen to, or phrases that use a lot of offbeats, things that sound a little off kilter. The harmony, I think, is quite bright, and the textures too, because you'll have... A huge gap, it sounds like, between high instruments and low instruments. You'll have, like in Fancy Free in the opening, the uh, piano and pizzicato and the strings. 
And but when you think of someone like Gershwin, who also, of course, kind of embodied this style of music, mm-hmm. you would never confuse the two. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, with Gershwin, I mean, he doesn't do that sort of separating the high and the low. He he has everything packed in together, so it sounds a, m- a lot more dense. It's like homogenous versus mm-hmm. two opposing forces going um, towards each other. You were talking about how rhythmic his music is. He uses a lot of syncopation. Part of that is he loves the percussion section. He just uses percussion in almost everything he he writes. And, you know, the use of the percussion, especially different world percussion instruments that he's that weren't traditionally part of the orchestra, he's bringing those in and he loves to use them just all the time. And the, when you have that those kinds of percussion instruments going on, it kind of necessitates a much more rhythmic style of melody. Okay. I, that, I mean, that's that's very well put because that's what it is. There's percussion all over his music from mm-hmm. whether it's a musical or something for chorus and orchestra. Right, especially in chorus. I mean, you don't usually think of a whole percussion section as something to accompany a chorus, but he does that so beautifully. So let's listen to a little bit of syncopation here and how he kind of uses it. He often will build up using a syncopated rhythm and it will lead up to a huge kind of shout section or it might also just lead to a huge moment, and then come right back down and start all over again. And we can already hear there, and in another example we'll listen to, is what he's emphasizing, because with this jazz influence, What's emphasized in a measure of four beats, you know, one, two, three, four, two and four are emphasized. One, two, three, four, one, two. It's when you snap your fingers. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's kind of hard to snap on one and three because you want to be on two and four to be uh, to emphasize. We can hear that towards the end of there and right from the beginning of um, this moment of West Side Story. course just literally snapping on two and four in the orchestra such a great theme there and and you're you're absolutely right it's it's emphasis that is what syncopation is all about i mean syncopation really what it means is it's where a musical event is emphasized where you don't expect it yes and thinking of this two and four in jazz what's emphasized even more within those uh, beats are the and of two and the end of four. Even more unexpected, yeah. It's more unexpected, and what we heard also just from what we just listened to, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. That's all over the place where he uses his accented upbeat to lead into a weaker downbeat. It's all over the place. It's kind of like a more drawn-out flam on the drum, and it's, and I don't say it's funky, but it, it adds that characteristic the kind of spice and herbs that just permeates all of his music absolutely and this is really goes back to the americanness you were saying how mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to snap on one and three but it turns out it's actually only hard for us americans to snap on one and three okay if, if you go to europe a lot of times that's true you'll you'll notice people start clapping on one and three and it's really mind-boggling to an american 
Okay. There's a there's a great video I'll put on the show notes page. Harry Connick Jr. is playing mm-hmm. um, piano, mm-hmm. and people are clapping, and they start clapping on one and three. <laughs> yep. So he adds a beat, mm-hmm. and then it makes him correct on two and four. Yep. And I had a solo piece. I was able to do that once successfully. It was a solo tuba work where I get people oh, clapping, cool. yeah. and then you can add a beat when they if they start clapping on one and three. But that's that's absolutely yeah. true. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because so far we've listened to okay, it's kind of easy, right? This is more jazz or Latin influenced, but also in for instance a, a work called Chichester Psalms, we hear this exact same thing. And the percussion and the brass right before that downbeat, a big, a big hit. Yeah, exactly. That's and yeah, Chichester Psalms was what I was thinking of. I mean. Psalm for chorus, you, it does not make you think syncopation, but with Bernstein, it's there. Yes. And I think another way to really just kind of drive this home is think of, of Beethoven, for instance, Beethoven 5. These are pickups into a downbeat. These are melodies that, these are lines that start on an offbeat, but they drive into a downbeat. Bernstein, like in that mambo we heard, it's starting on a downbeat, and he's always leading to that upbeat to either accent or create that long sustain note that you mentioned. Right. These are the typical sounds of Bernstein. One that I don't always think of with Bernstein or his symphonies, particularly actually his first one. But let's listen to a moment of this because I think it's just, it says so much about how versatile he was. It's so wide, it's expansive. We still have some of those opposing forces of, you know, higher strings against lower, but it's still, it's a very, very, very different sound than what you, what we've come to love from works like West Side Story or Candide. So if, if yeah. for everyone listening, if you've not heard his symphonies, definitely listen to them. They are unpredictable is what I would say. Yeah, they're amazing works. Uh, symphony number no. one especially is the Mahler and Copland influence. He's really combining those and, and making a, an American symphonic sound. Yes. It's kind of like when you listen to some early Aaron Copland. Mm-hmm. You're kind of surprised, oh, well, this is, this is another side of Copland that you um, may not be familiar with. Yeah, and on that same symphonic vein, another work that almost no one is familiar with but I really love is the, the Serenade after Plato's Symposium. And this kind of demonstrates that same side of his personality, of the, the classical symphonic side, but bringing in lots of different influences as well, and obviously with lots of syncopation as well. But uh, it also incorporates his collaboration with, uh, back in his Harvard days, he collaborated with a fellow student of his, who later became a philosopher, to put on a performance of Aristophanes' The Birds, which was an ancient Greek tragedy. And so his exposure to ancient Greek literature led to this piece. Plato's Symposium is a, an ancient Greek philosophy text, and it has all these characters that all give a different oration about love. And so Bernstein turns this idea into basically a, a violin concerto with many different movements. Each movement represents a different speech about the different sides of love. And this is really a, my favorite moment. It's a brilliant, dramatic uh, moment because it's, it's kind of where you get the contrast between a really profound and and deep, solemn statement from Socrates, the great, you know, philosopher, the guy who started philosophy, 
Right after that comes this moment, which is where Alcibiades, a young man who's really a party animal, comes in and crashes the whole party and talks about the wild side of love. I can just see him pounding out all these huge chords on the piano at like three in the morning. <laughs> right, exactly. And there you, you see that American syncopation, that rhythm is in there even uh, with his ancient Greek stuff. I think we're all especially familiar with the bigger works like, of course, Candide and uh, West Side Story and also um, works like On the Town. And the Serenade after Plato's Symposium, absolutely beautiful. We'll put a link on the show notes page because that is one actually I wasn't even familiar with until um, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. It's it's quite a work. A few works I would also recommend that people would have never heard before probably is actually the last work Bernstein ever wrote was a brass quintet. A set of dances. They're very, very short, but they're very fun. Also, Elegy from Mippy 2. Mippy, I guess his brother's dog, had died. This is like in the 40s. And he wrote these just little tunes, um, an Elegy from Mippy. And the second one is for solo trombone and tapping your foot. Yeah, and you, you don't think of uh, Bernstein as a miniaturist, but uh, he wrote incredible miniatures. I mean, he also wrote little piano works for his friends as anniversaries. So we can talk about a little bit about Bernstein's image not quite shown to the public. He was also a human being, although he loved the celebrity. He loved, you know, you know, flying into a, a huge city. You know, you have the, the biggest, most expensive penthouse, your private chef and all of this stuff. But he was also, I think, frustrated with, with growing old. He also had a temper, moments of anger. And he had this conflicted issue of wanting to write, quote-unquote, serious music, because I think, of course, we can all agree all of his music is fantastic. There doesn't really Mm -hmm. need to be this designation of serious or not, but people did see him kind of like that. Oh, he wrote for a musical. He can write for that show tune kind of stuff or whatever. But Bernstein wanted to write the great big American opera or the big symphony. I think he told also Marin Alsop saying um, something like, Composers write the same piece over and over for their entire lives until they finally find, you know, that that one thing. And he was searching for that one thing, but composing was also hard because he had almost no time. That's why he didn't he doesn't have hundreds of works. Yep. And um, he said being at home, sitting at the piano for a day, he'd be in tears at the end of the day because he was by himself and he just it was frustrating. He definitely seems to have drawn the most energy from really collaborating with people and, and having people around him uh, while he worked. That gave him so much energy. And trying to compose a work by yourself, that's really hard, especially for someone who, who loved people so much. And there are, I mean, there's, thankfully, he was such a celebrity, there's almost unlimited amounts of um, footage. Um, video of footage of him mm-hmm. conducting and also rehearsing. I'll put on the show notes page some very interesting, sometimes very tense moments of rehearsals with Bernstein. Actually, it's really funny. One of the top comments is musicians disagreeing with Bernstein is my favorite uh-huh. subgenre of horror or something like that. <laughs> right. But because although there's some tense moments in a recording session or a rehearsal before a concert with huge stars, although there was frustration and sometimes maybe a little anger, you knew it was always 
out of a, a place of love because I've been in situations where I've seen people be screamed at mm-hmm. in rehearsals, especially for recording sessions or just even just rehearsals for a concert. And you know there's a lot of animosity sometimes with um, certain people. But Bernstein was, even when he was upset, it was... I mean, you knew he was trying to do the right thing, get the right thing for the music and for the composer. That's right. Yeah, that's that's what he th- that's what made him such a great and famous conductor. Really, was it was all about bringing out the music, and that that was the driving force. There's also an interesting moment where conducting the Vienna Philharmonic, they had a pickup session the next day to reshoot some of the stuff for TV that didn't quite go right the day before. Sometimes it's literally an audience member coughing too much during Mm -hmm. a moment or crinkling something, or maybe someone just makes um, a simple mistake or the camera's in the wrong place. And those are very expensive to do. And in the end, Bernstein was very upset threw his lit cigarette out into the hall. There's no audience. This was a rehearsal Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it burned a hole in the floor, apparently, that stayed there for like decades or something yeah. until someone, until they changed the carpet. And he, he basically stormed off um, quite upset. But he was always, always dedicated to, to the composer and really trying to bring to life what they wanted, no matter the cost. Yeah. And, and this is what we were talking about before uh, with he lived several lifetimes in, in one. I mean, he would put his, his whole being into each of the, I don't know, 20 different things that he was he was doing it's crazy i also have to say at that concert series with the vienna philharmonic where he was upset Mm. the encore is famous again i'll have a video on the show notes page he conducts the encore a movement from a haydn symphony i think Mm -hmm. and he doesn't conduct he's standing there using his eyes smiling doing a gesture with his face it's incredible to watch and this is bernstein at the height of his career and I, it reminds me of times when you look at art or sculpture, and especially people will see something by Jackson Pollock and say, what is that? I could do that. You know, my kid could mm-hmm. do that. And my the first answer is always, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't do that. And here's Bernstein with this huge personality and just um, an infectious face and his smile. He could get away with it. Yeah. It's like, why did he do it? Because he can. Yeah. And in the midst, I mean, it just shows in the midst of everything, uh, he was all about play. And in 1990, just briefly after he had announced a retirement from conducting that he would be focusing on education and um, teaching, wanted to be with the youth, he unfortunately, of course, um, died in 1990. Mm -hmm. What's incredible is that the New York Philharmonic has not performed Candied Overture with a conductor since his death. They play it. It's on the concert programs, but there's no conductor. Yeah, and that's kind of a fascinating instance of uh, like preserving the memory of Bernstein conducting without him being there. Yeah, that's that's it. I, I hope to one day be able to see that. That'd be interesting. That would be amazing, yeah. Of course, we can't get into every single moment of what Bernstein did. I mean, we've just kind of... Uh, this is the jumping off point, I think. We're yeah. going to put a lot of stuff on the show notes page. But wanted to share some aspects of his life and his music you may not know. And I think a good place to to kind of wind down is with another quote from Marin Alsop. And I think this is the reason why Bernstein became who he was. Alsop writes, I will never forget going to a New York Philharmonic rehearsal when Leonard Bernstein was conducting Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. I was imagining how many hundreds of times he must have conducted that symphony and wondering what kind of approach he would take. 
The two hours that followed were an absolute revelation and offered me insight into and understanding of who Leonard Bernstein, the conductor, really was. This was a man whose primary and all-consuming commitment was to the creator, the composer. He was unrelenting in his dedication and doggedly devoted to uncovering the composer's true intent. Imagine my surprise when he walked out onto the podium and announced to the New York Philharmonic that he had been wrong about Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony all these years. This willingness and desire to re-examine every piece of music, to bring a fresh approach and new insights to every performance of a work, set Bernstein apart from everyone else. Yeah, it's a great portrait of someone who's absolutely committed to openness and play. Yes. After every concert, he was soaking wet. I mean, he gave it everything on the podium, and he had almost no energy when he when he came off. And that's part of being a great performer and understanding the music is every moment is just the present. You have to play for now. You, mm-hmm. you always have to be reexamining and also questioning what you've done in the past. Is it worth doing in the future? Is that really doing the composer justice? And that's what Bernstein was all about. Yeah, he was... A, a great American artist. And you can find a ton of information and videos and, and everything else about Bernstein on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Okay, Matthew, we're going to do something a little new here. We're going to read some reviews of the podcast. We have been uh, love everyone writing in suggestions and ideas and just um, comments about the podcast. But we also love um, the reviews people have left on Apple Podcasts. So here is one from Rose 874 She gave us five stars and said, I recently started learning the violin, which has given me the urge to pay more attention to classical pieces. I love the different topics covered in this podcast, from analysis of specific pieces of music to the views of those who currently play. Well, thank you so much, A-Rose874. I hope you're still uh, doing well with the violin and, um, of course, practice, and you get a little bit better every day. Absolutely, yeah. And here's one from Bonnie20096, gave us five stars as well, writes, Excellent. I'm looking forward to the fall season, which we've just started. This podcast is one of my very favorites, and I always learn so much. Hope it never runs out of music to talk about. I doubt we ever will. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't think that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for writing in. Of course, you can leave us a review in your podcast app and send in any comments or suggestions or anything you want to classicalbreakdown at weta.org.